Some things in life are really difficult to describe. For example, how would you tell someone the taste of freshly stewed rhubarb? You don't like rhubarb? Okay, well, replace it with something else, okay? How would you describe to someone else the face of your partner? Or how would you describe some significant experience that you have been through? Just a few weeks ago, I was in Israel. I could bore you from now to next year with stories about what it was like. But uh, on one of the later nights when we were in Galilee, I got the opportunity to speak in a boat on the Sea of Galilee, just a few yards from the shore where the disciples landed on the night that Peter walked on the water towards Jesus. And we thought about that story. It would be impossible for me to describe to you what it felt like. There was, it was dark, there was a moon on the water, the boat was floating in silence. We were about to share communion together. It's an indescribable experience. I couldn't use words to tell you how it felt. So, if we struggle with human realities like that, how do we talk about God? Because this is the God to whom Paul bursts out in praise at the end of a closely argued section in his letter to the Romans, as Eugene Peterson translates it like this. Is there anyone around who can explain God? Anyone smart enough to tell him what to do? Anyone who has done him such a huge favor that God has to ask his advice? Everything comes from him. Everything happens through him. Everything ends up in him. Always glory, always praise. Yes, yes, yes. How do we talk about a God like that? The Father, the Son, and yes, the Holy Spirit. Well, the answer is that the scriptures do it, firstly, through stories. It has been calculated that 43% of the scriptures is story. And we use stories in that way too. For example, you might come to me some Sunday and you might say, John, I've been coming here for a few weeks and there's a guy that's very often on the door. I think his name is Clarky. Tell me what's he like. Well, I could start to describe to you what Clark is like, or better than that, I could tell you one of the thousand stories I have in the back of my head of things that I have experienced with Clarky over the last 20 years. And those stories would tell you so much more about him than any description I could give you an answer to that question, because the stories would let you know that he really is a legend in his own lifetime. We use story all the time to do that, and that's how the scripture often talks about God. The other way the scripture helps us to understand God is metaphor. And that's what we find in Genesis chapter one in the first creation account in the scriptures when the Holy Spirit becomes involved. Thinking about the Holy Spirit. Today we're thinking about the Holy Spirit in creation. And Genesis one goes like this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. The Spirit of God hovers over the deep. That's a metaphor. 
There are loads of other metaphors in the scriptures about the Holy Spirit. He is poured out. He is grieved. He comes on people. He is teacher, an advocate, a seal, a filler, a baptizer, and so on. All of those expressions are metaphors. So what does this metaphor in Genesis chapter 1 verse 2 tell us about the Holy Spirit and creation? Well, one of the problems about metaphor is that you need to know what aspect of the picture conjured up by the word is the one the writer wants you to convey. For example, take a metaphor that you're going to be sick hearing for the next couple of weeks. The members of the English Women's World Cup team are commonly referred to as the lionesses. Okay, so... That's a metaphor. Are we to understand that these women have claws? Are we to understand that they hunt for food while their partners lays around all day? Or are they dangerous to other humans like the lion that was supposed to be loose in Berlin this week? You may have read the story on the internet. Turned out to be a boar actually and not a lion at all. But anyway, are those the, the things that the metaphor lionesses are meant to convey to us? I think not. Probably the the metaphor is meant to convey a sense of nobility, courage, and strength. That's, I think, what we're meant to get out of it. Didn't do that well in the first game. But anyway, so lionesses, it's a metaphor. And so you've got to be careful with what bit you take out of the picture if you're going to understand what it's meant to tell us. And the word that is used in Genesis chapter 1 in Hebrew, the original word occurs only once elsewhere in the scriptures, apart from Genesis 1 verse 2. And it's in Deuteronomy chapter 32 verse 11, where Moses is talking about how God cares for his people. And here's what he says. Again, this is in Eugene Peterson's translation. He says about God, he found him out in the wilderness. That is Jacob, Israel. He found Israel out in the wilderness in an empty, windswept wasteland. He threw his arms around him, lavished attention on him, guarding him as the apple of his eye. He was like an eagle hovering over its nest, overshadowing its young, then spreading its wings, lifting them into the air, teaching them to fly. What we understand from that is what aspect of the picture of hovering we are meant to take. Because the thing is this, the metaphor of the Holy Spirit hovering over the waters does not compare the presence of of the Holy Spirit to that of a drone taking video footage but completely detached from the situation underneath it. Because you could think that hovering could be a drone, but it's not. The metaphor in Genesis 1 is of a bird teaching its young to fly. It's not the only bird reference to the Holy Spirit. You may remember that when Jesus was baptized, the Holy Spirit descended on him like a dove. And this metaphor of the Holy Spirit hovering underlines the value God puts on creation. As Graham Tomlin says, the spirit broods over creation, fulfills and perfects it. And he does that because creation is a good thing. God enlists the help of humanity to mediate his love and creative presence to the world. This metaphor of the hovering spirit teaches us that creation matters. 
Spirit is not hovering distractedly like a drone. He is hovering like a mother bird teaching its young to fly. He is intimately involved in the circumstances beneath him. And so it teaches us how that creation matters to God. It teaches us how we should value it, how we should treat it, how we should celebrate it. On Christmas Eve 1968, the three Apollo astronauts who were in lunar orbit at that time in the command module famously did two things. One of the things they did was take that photograph, which is often called Earthrise, that astonishing photograph of the earth rising above the moon. Second thing they did was to read Genesis chapter one, verses one to 11. And when they signed off the broadcast that night, Jim Lovell sent Christmas greetings to everyone on what he called the good earth. The good earth. That's what this is. And we are to steward it as God's representatives because over this cosmos, the Holy Spirit hovers, broods, like a mother bird teaching its young to fly. We are called to care for, steward, look after, celebrate the good earth. And of course, we're not on our own. We are not invited simply to become eco-warriors. As Graham Tomlin says, we are joining in a work which the Spirit of God has been doing since the dawn of the age. And when you think about it, this task of stewarding, caring for, loving, and celebrating the earth seems impossible. Yesterday on the BBC News website, there was a story which started like this. A series of climate records on temperature, ocean heat, and Antarctic sea ice have alarmed some scientists who, uh, who said their speed and timing is unprecedented. But when we listen to read articles like that, listen to what is going on around us. This seems like an impossible task. How can we possibly do anything about this massive problem, which even international governments don't appear to be able to help? The problems seem insurmountable, but it is different, surely, if we are joining in the work of the Creator Himself. You know, it's a bit like... On, on Friday evening in our home, we had six guests for a meal. Now, if you had told me that I had to prepare the meal to feed them, that would have been an impossible task right there, okay? On the scale, roughly, of trying to save the planet. But the reality was that that was which would have been impossible for me became possible because I had an invitation to help Lisa, who knows how to deliver such a miracle. And that meant that therefore, I was actually able to be involved. I did really important things, like I lit the fire. And I kept washing the dishes. My wife has this amazing ability to use every single item in the cupboard when preparing a meal. And it is necessary to wash them because they will be used several times before the meal finally makes it to the table. So I busied myself lighting the fire and washing dishes, feeding her with a never-ending list of brand new wash dishes so that the meal could be prepared. And I became a kind of co-host, but only because I was invited into something that somebody actually knew something about. So in one way, when we look at creation and think this is an impossible task, well, is it an impossible task if we have received an invitation to join the creator himself in the work that he is actually doing? 
We are not alone in this calling. The Holy Spirit is with us. We help him. But it also means something else if the Holy Spirit is involved in this. We are keen in this fellowship to listen up for the prompting of the Holy Spirit. On most Sundays at the end of worship, words will be offered that have come to members of the worship team by whoever is leading the service. They will say, this might mean something to you and they will invite you to come for prayer if in some way it resonates with you. And we pray with people for God to reveal himself to them to those who need his help and we are conscious that God the Holy Spirit is constantly involved in this activity. God is the speaking God. He didn't stop speaking when the scriptures were complete. He continues to speak and we want to hear what he has to say and we want to invite people into what God is speaking into their lives. But the same Holy Spirit who renews our lives renews the face of creation. So shouldn't we expect promptings from him, not only about our spiritual condition, but also about how we treat the earth? Isn't it possible that actually, even now, he speaks into the circumstances that we face as individuals, as a nation, as part of all the nations who live on this planet right now, that the Holy Spirit is speaking into that, prompting us, The question is, are we as open and ready to hear what he has to say about that as we are to listen to what he has to say about us and our lives? When Lydia was introducing today, she said one of the things that the the hope was when this series was, was instituted among us here for the next number of weeks was that we would be open to what the Spirit might want to do. We've just been singing about that in a song. Do whatever you want to do. Could it be that the Spirit is speaking into our hearts and lives right now about the crisis that our world faces? He has something to say about it because this is the good earth and he cares about it. The metaphor is that the Holy Spirit hovers, broods like a bird over creation. That calls us to respond to what he has to say. But that's not all because there's another metaphor in the text. As you will see in some English translations of the scriptures, the word in Hebrew which is translated spirit also means breath or wind. The spirit is the wind of God and some English translations translate it in that way. It's a valid possibility. One commentator says this, wind, a symbol of power, is used theologically in the Old Testament to refer to the dynamic activity of God in the world. The wind of God is the powerful, dynamic activity of God, the spirit of God. And the narrative that follows in Genesis chapter one, which I'm sure you'll be familiar with, recounts how God does two things in creation. In the narrative, if you read it through Genesis chapter one through to two, verse four, you'll see how the earth initially is a chaotic void, the beautiful Hebrew expression that is translated as formless and empty is the Hebrew expression tohu wavohu. It's a rhyming expression. It means formless and empty. And this chaotic void, which we find translated in, in this way by, by Eugene Peterson, first this, 
God created the heavens and earth, all you see, all you don't see. Earth was a soup of nothingness, a bottomless emptiness, an inky blackness. And then God does two things. The first thing he does is he makes space. He separates the night from the day. He separates the waters under the sky from the waters above the sky. And he separates the sea from the land. And then he takes the spaces that he has created and he fills them. He fills the skies with the planets and the stars, the moon and the sun. He fills the seas with fish and the skies with birds. And he fills the land with vegetation and creatures and humans. That's his activity, okay? He creates space and then he fills the space. So what is the Holy Spirit doing in this? He is breath, so he gives breath. He gives life. In Job chapter 33, that same expression can also be found. Elihu says, the Spirit of God has made me. The breath of the Almighty gives me life. The Holy Spirit is a life giver. He, his activity in, uh, in what God is doing here is to bring life. And how does he do this? He does this by making the creation ready to respond to the command of the Lord. He fits the creation to hear the instruction, let there be light, and there was light, let the sea fill with creatures and so on. The, the earth is prepared and made ready to hear that instruction and respond to that instruction so that life begins on earth. I can compare this to something else. I go to a personal trainer once a week. Now, please don't fall about the place laughing, but I actually do, okay? Now, what I have to tell you, and this is fairly obvious, is I am not working on a six-pack. I am hoping to tighten up a little, okay? But I'm definitely not working on a six-pack. We do exercises that create instability, okay? And the reason why we create that instability is to help me improve my balance. Come on, I'm not as young as I used to be. And also we work on the strength of my core. Now I have to tell you, it's not for aesthetic purposes. It's a bit past that now. So what is the work actually for? So that when, for, uh, so that my body is fit to respond to the commands of my brain. Basically, that's what it's doing, so that I can have better balance, so that my core can be stronger, so that when a few weeks ago we were in En Gedi, where David hid out with his men in the caves, and we climbed up the Gihon Spring to sit under one of the waterfalls, I could climb on uneven rocks and slippery paths at speed and not lose my footing and fall. That's what I do the exercises for so that when my brain needs to tell my body to do something, my body can actually do it. And that's what the Spirit does in creation. It fits the world to be able to respond to the command of God. God, the Holy Spirit, is not destroying the earth and the universe. He is preparing it for a new. It's what he has always done. And as we shall see next week, when we get to the next part of this story about the Holy Spirit, when he does that with human beings, remarkable things happen. 
When God the Holy Spirit fits human beings to respond to the command and instruction of the Lord, incredible things happen. The prisoner Joseph knows what Pharaoh the king is dreaming. Samson becomes Superman. The boy Samuel becomes a kingmaker. All of these things and more happen when God fits human beings to respond to the command of God. So if he can have that impact on human subjects of his work, what will the renewed earth be like when by the Spirit of God all this is made ready for a new command and becomes what John saw? Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. The brooding spirit, the wind of God will fit humble stardust to become in the dwelling place of the Father and the Son among his people. We are people of hope in a world increasingly transfixed by apocalyptic fears. Because God the Holy Spirit, the wind of God who broods over the creation is going to fit stardust to respond to the renewing voice of God. In 1983, Peter and Miranda Harris, he was an Anglican clergyman. He and his wife left England to go to Portugal to set up a field study center and a bird observatory in the Algarve. The story of what they did is told in this book, Under the Bright Wings. It tells the story of how they went to a country they hardly knew to engage in cross-cultural evangelism, in community living, and in conservation. They didn't really know how they were going to do it or what it was going to be like. And the book tells the story of the ups and downs, the chaos, uh, the relative poverty that they lived in for a number of years before they really got the work off the ground. But they felt that God called them to do this and to go to this place not only out of a love and compassion for the people of Portugal that they're going to live amongst and work amongst and witness to, but also to the creation itself in a part of Portugal that was really badly affected by development um, and so on that threatened the livelihood of birds and other creatures that lived in the area. They went there out of a sense of calling to do it. They founded an organization called Arosha. That was in 1983. The book that tells the story was written in the 1990s. Today... Arosha works in over 20 countries worldwide and in all six continents. And it started with just two people who heard the prompting of the Spirit of God and joined the wind of the Spirit in the renewal of creation. Two people. Supposing everyone in this building today heard the prompting of the Spirit and began to invest their lives. I, I, I'm not suggesting you go and live in the Algarve, although it would be an awful lot warmer than here right now. 
But if all, what if all of us, individually and collectively, heard the prompting of the Spirit and began to respond to what he's saying to us about the good earth? If two people could have such an impact, what could all this number of people have an impact on? What would happen if we all joined the Holy Spirit in the renewal of the earth? The Holy Spirit in creation. He broods over it like a mother bird watching her young as they first leave the nest and start to fly, ready to go and catch them if she has to, if their wings fail them in that moment. Involved, concerned. God, the Holy Spirit, is like that about creation. He broods over creation. He has things to say to us about creation. Are we listening? And that same God, the Holy Spirit, the wind of God, fits the earth to respond to the command of God just as he fits us as we will see next week. What might he be calling us to do so that we might join him in the renewal of the good earth?